Stephen Palmer's Hairy London, episode 10. Valentina led Jeremy up to the attic of her house, which she converted so that the roof and upper sections of the walls were like the glass house at Kew, with all of the sky and much of nearby London visible. A breathtaking view. Jeremy glanced at her. He found himself attracted to her, despite her forward, almost masculine personality and those hints of suffering. Yet now, perhaps because of the evidence of her courageous rescue, he wondered if he really cared about that aspect of her. Yes, she was an active woman, daredevil possibly, but why shouldn't a woman be more like a man? And then he saw an object that he thought he recognised. What is this place? He asked in a hushed voice. My lunar laboratory, she replied. Then you are a lunar noble? Only a minor one. Charmy walked towards the object. You know it, don't you? She whispered, joining him. Damn, yes. It was a small selenograph, not unlike the one he'd retrieved from the Temple of Azure Lick in far northern Hindu. But wait, Valentina. The Royal Institute holds the Raja's selenograph atop its roof. I service it once a year. I know it's functional. We could use this selenograph to communicate with them. I did not know about that, she replied. Yes, let us speak with thither too. That night, Jeremy set up the selenograph's wooden tripod, securing the feet upon a sideboard with brass screws. On the tripod seat, he placed a frame made of thin slats of oak, screwed together with copper pins, and into this frame he placed the moon disk itself, a foot in diameter and glowing yellow. He then checked the rotational movement of the frame. The moon disk turned with it. Then he placed a thin lens of glass in front of the disk, a fragile object slightly larger than the disk that fitted into slots. With a graduated wooden strip, he checked the distance between lens and disk, and then with a plumb line, he checked vertically. Finally, he connected the moon disk to a box on the frame using moonflower stem strings, which he unwrapped off the dowel that held them. He was ready. He knew the direction of the Institute. Hopefully, sometime tonight, a message would get through and there would be contact. There is a full moon tomorrow, Valentina said. The salination will be strong. Jeremy grinned. The joy of selenography was that it did not work in straight lines. The other station could be miles away, behind the cathedral, behind even a mountain. Using a brass connector on the box to cut and remake the lunar link, he took from the box the selenograph's earpiece and voicer. With one Bakelite petal at his ear and the other at his lips, he cleared his throat and said, Testing. Testing. Jeremy Pantomile calling the Royal Institute. How will they know you are calling? Valentina asked. They will notice a yellow glow in their upper chambers. They'll know it's the selenograph receiving and somebody will come. Thither too, hopefully, though that isn't guaranteed. 
and so they waited. Other messages appeared, since selenography was not limited by straight lines or one-to-one -one contact, he had sent out his query as a ripple in the selenate aura. He heard, Decent of you to find me a whole jar of Balinese oysters. And, Will you tell that wretched chimney sweep to stop making ice at my wife? And, most curiously of all, The spinnaker of the orange watsit bulges far too much for my liking. You'll have us falling out into the hair. But, at length, Jeremy heard a voice he recognised. Thither to Frenulum here. Is that you, Jeremy? One of our cleaners said she saw a yellow glow. Jeremy, are you there? Here, dear fellow, I'm free of the clutches of Murchison volume. I'm with Valentina Moondust, very close to the Thames in her house. Is there aught we can do to assist the Institute? Indeed there is. I have news for you. We urgently need to trace and speak with a man known as the Trichologist, thought to be living somewhere south of the river, in some kind of palace. That is exactly the sort of mission a chap like you is good for. Take your selenograph and deliver it to him. Then everybody at the Institute who wants to speak with him will be able to. Who is he? Don't know exactly, but all our men in the field have been hearing rumours about him. We think he may be connected with the hairiness. Right-ho, keep your eyes on the Roger's selenograph. Over and out. Valentina nodded. So, we have our mission. Yes, he agreed. And you were the one who facilitated it. Well done. She batted her eyelashes at him and said, You flatter me, Sharon. He grinned. Gosh. He liked this woman. But I have another secret, she said. Now I am here, I have to access certain items my family bought from our lunar home when they repaired to London, the most important of which is the Selenowis. The what? It will be easier to show you. Valentina led him downstairs to the rear of the house, where a conservatory stood. Standing at one side was a vehicle composed of a great glass sphere six feet in diameter, covered with a tracery of iron that supported it. A hinged gull-wing door had been cut into one side. This sphere lay upon a black metal framework that itself stood on four rubber tires. Jeremy said, This vehicle will never forge a path through the hair. She laughed. Ah, but you don't know how it operates. There came a twinkle to her eyes. You see, the tires are to support it at rest. A selenowiz flies. Jeremy nodded. Of course. Midnight had come and gone. With Valentina in her bedroom, Jeremy wrapped himself in a mohair blouson and slept on a couch downstairs. They spent the next day preparing provisions and equipment for their expedition, until, as evening fell, they partook of cheese nudges and poltroon souffle in the conservatory, a final supper before they departed. Jeremy put a hamper into the Selenowiz boot, ensuring there was plenty of wine in it. Then Valentina opened the conservatory door and pushed the Selenowiz outside. She closed and locked the door, placed the key on a chain between her breasts, 
then sat beside Sherony inside the glass globe, pulling down the gullwing door so that its shutting mechanism clicked. Now what? Sherony asked. We wait for the moon to rise. Because it is full, the power of the Selenowiz will be maximized. We can fly perhaps 15 or 20 miles before the moths in the engine tire. How long to wait? A few minutes. Jeremy felt a hint of discomfort at being in such intimate proximity to Valentina. She had perfumed herself with lavender, he noted, and brushed her hair so that it shone. She wore a blue trouser suit and a formal petiquette. He glanced down at his own stained clothes and felt only embarrassment. The sky was clear, and soon enough they saw the moon rising over the eastern horizon, round and orange through a hair-induced mist. Valentina took a metal nose from the pouch at her side and pressed buttons, whereupon the Selenowiz rose into the air. By pointing the nose, linked by moonflower stem strings to the control juncture, she was able to steer the vehicle, and in moments they were flying over the Thames. The front of the Selenowiz slightly lower than the rear, so they had to sit back in their leather seats or else fall out. Where shall we go first? Jeremy asked. This trichologist must have a palace of note if his rumour already spends north of the river. Valentina replied. We'll fly for a while and then observe the land below us. Watch out for a hirsute palace unfamiliar to you. He nodded, gazing through the glass globe at the tenebrous city below him. In some houses, elecurtric lamps burned, but many streets were dark from end to end, and he feared for the lives of their residents. Some communities had made camps by shearing great quantities of hair, and many of these camps were marked by blazing bonfires, but he knew such communities could not last long. The hair regrew. It covered all. Truly, it was a plague. And then, disaster. Valentina turned the Selenowiz east so that the moon returned to view. She cried, Jeremy, look! The moon was not round. A segment had been taken from it. An eclipse! he gasped, and we're far from the north bank of the Thames. We will never make it back, though I will try. But it was far too late. As the eclipse became full and the moon turned red, the Selenowiz descended like a discarded feather to the ground. Chattering as Valentina fought with the controls, then gliding into a lush crop of black hair, everything went dark. The Selenowiz halted, silent, they lay submerged beneath hair. Jeremy massaged a bruised chin while Valentina sat back in her seat and sobbed. He grasped her shoulders and pulled her to him. There, there, he said. We'll find a way back. I'm a member of the Suicide Club, remember? She turned to him and wept upon his chest. I am so sorry, Jeremy, she said. I should have checked the lunar timetable. It has been so long since I had anybody to take with me in the Selena Wiz. He kissed her cheek. My dear, he said, I'll expend every effort to save you, to save us, from any unpleasant fate that might lie ahead. With me at your side, he paused, considered who he was talking to, then continued. 
With you at my side, we'll forge a path back to Swan Lane. I do so swear. There came a noise of thumping outside the Selenowiz. Jeremy jumped, peering into the luxuriant gloom. Pale lamps like frosted lanterns inside the globe gave some illumination, but he could make nothing out beyond the edge of the vehicle. Then the thumps returned, louder, and the hair moved outside. Faces, dark faces, bald, sweaty, with round white eyes, grinning people holding tribal weapons. I believe the natives have located us, he said. Velvine was horrified by the cruelty he'd witnessed at the Pentonville Road building. Cruelty the like of which he had not known existed. Though he knew nothing about children, an unexpected feeling inside him, that he thought must be sympathy, welled up. He could not control this feeling, and he found himself weeping, not for himself, as he had in Highgate Cemetery, but for the boy, Tycho. He wandered along the road to King's Cross Railway Station, pulling the clay figure behind him, forlorn, tired and bruised. The smell of chocolate emanating from the station perked him up, and he realised he was hungry. Outside the entrance, he saw a number of people holding placards with curious legends upon them. Ban the hair, and equal rights for us and them, and most curiously of all, if you can read this, you're educated. One of the men grunted at him and tossed over a printed newspaper, which Velvine opened to scan the front page. Marxist Leninist Times, emergency edition. London aristocracy spreads hairy lie. From our Russian correspondent, the parasitic upper classes of London town yesterday night spread a great hairy blanket across us all, destroying the mobility of the working classes in a foul move that Engels himself could have predicted in the condition of the working classes in England. Today, every street in London town, every alley and passage is choked with hair that the aristocracy can avoid because they have Archimedean floating systems which only they can afford. Fight the reactionaries! Brothers and sisters, unite! Many people who must go through the conditions of their lives go to work every day, cannot today go to work today. The government is to launch an inquiry, but who will write it? And to who will they report? The landed gentry who rule us from Downing Street, of course. The London aristocracy have spread a hairy lie. Velvine glanced up at the slender, pale and unshaven man who had thrown him the rag. Who are you, if I might ask? The man scowled at him. More to the point, Gov, who are you? Velvine glanced down at himself, aware that his attire marked him out as a man not of the working classes, although his clothes were filthy and tattered. Moderating his accent as best he could, he said... I just heard a man whipping a little boy in the jolly cab down Pentonville Road. Yes, they do that, the people who rule us. You only just noticed. What's your name, Gov? Velvine. Orchard. I'm a sculptor. A destitute sculptor. He glanced at the clay figure on the trolley behind him. This is my latest work.
try as you might to deny the fact that you've been slightly indulging in Hairy London by Stephen Palmer. Narrated by R.D. Watson.